Hi there, and welcome to another episode of A Little Historical Context, where we help you become a smarter citizen by sharing unbiased context, nuance, and depth about the world's most meaningful topics and current events. If you enjoy this episode, please consider supporting our mission to make you and millions of others smarter about the world's most meaningful topics and current events. You can support us by sharing this podcast episode with your family and friends, as well as by making a financial contribution on our website, a littlehistoricalcontext.com. Now enjoy the episode. Allah is Hamas's goal. The Prophet is the model. The Quran its constitution. Jihad its path. And death for the sake of Allah is the loftiest of its wishes. This is not a quote from some pundit, talking head, or agenda-driven activist. This is Article 8 of Hamas's Charter, originally published in 1988, following the year it was founded. Another article from its charter describes Hamas as one of the links in the chain of the struggle against the Zionist invaders and references a hadith, an Islamic commandment, which states that the day of judgment would not come until the Muslims fight and kill the Jews. Article 13 reads, There is no negotiated settlement possible. Jihad is the only answer. For those who aren't aware, jihad is an Arabic word which literally means striving or struggling, especially with a praiseworthy aim. In an Islamic context, it can refer to almost any effort to make personal and social life conform with Allah's guidance, such as struggle against one's evil inclinations, proselytizing, or efforts toward the moral betterment of the Muslim community, Ummah. It is also frequently associated with war and armed struggle against non-believers. Yet for years, Israeli leaders thought that Palestinian terror groups and their hell-bent rampaging ideology could essentially be bribed to not inflict too much agony on Israel and its citizens. More specifically, the Israeli government reportedly allowed Hamas to receive monthly installments of $30 million from Qatar, and Israeli officials also issued some 18,000 day work permits for Gaza residents to work in Israel. Recently, thousands of Palestinian laborers from Gaza were allowed to enter Israel for work, such as in agriculture and construction. We worked with them, we ate with them, we talked to them every day, recounted 28-year-old Aaron Smolansky, an Israeli who speculated that at least some of the workers helped provide Palestinian terrorists with detailed information about his community and its members, including those who, like him, were armed. It was very clear that the terrorists had a lot of intelligence on our community. They seemed to know exactly where they were going and what they were doing. Hamas used an unprecedented intelligence tactic to mislead Israel over the last months by giving a public impression that it was unwilling to wage war against Israel while preparing for this massive operation. A source close to the terror organization said, Hamas convinced Israel that it was more interested in ensuring Gaza's people had work permits that allowed them to enter Israel, where they earned higher salaries than they would in the enclave. Before the October 7th attacks, Israeli Irit Lahav described herself as a longtime peace activist, among many Israelis who supported the 2005 disengagement from Gaza. She was sure that when the Strip's Palestinians received their own land, they would fill it with restaurants and hotels, but... Then they started firing missiles and rockets at us. Still, Lahav used to drive Palestinians from Gaza to Tel Aviv for hospital appointments, a two-hour drive each way. 
And I used to think it was just a few extreme people who wanted to hurt us, she said. After the terrorists came in, they called everybody to come into our homes. Teenagers and women came, looting, killing, and hurting us on purpose. Lahav's pre-October 7th recollections are not rare in Israeli society. Before the massacre, you'd often hear Israelis say things like, most Palestinians just want to put food on their table and take care of their families. As one liberal Israeli recently commented to me, yeah, most Palestinians want to put food on their table and take care of their families, just probably not while living next to a Jewish state. To dismiss this presumption is to not know Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which are immensely driven by ideology, a set of beliefs or philosophies held for reasons that are not purely epistemic, relating to knowledge, in which practical elements are as prominent as theoretical ones. This might be why these terror organizations justify spending so much of its $300 million budget on weapons, underground tunnels, and other military infrastructure to prepare itself for the aforementioned Day of Judgment, while consequently depriving Gaza residents of what we in the West might call opportunity, prosperity, and other Western world desires. Islamic ideology might also be why many Gaza residents are willing to accept poor and arduous living conditions. As Article 14 of the Hamas Charter says, the liberation of Palestine is the personal duty of every Palestinian. What's more, Article 21 promotes mutual social responsibility and urges members to consider the interests of the masses as their own personal interests. Since Hamas took governing control over Gaza in 2007, Palestinian terror ideology has been directly ingrained into the Strip's education and social systems, indoctrinating residents from a young age. Hamas or its affiliated charities run at least 40% of the social institutions in the West Bank and Gaza and support hundreds of thousands of Palestinians with monthly financial support in Gaza. Part of the appeal of these institutions is that they fill a vacuum in the administration by the Palestine Liberation Organization of the Palestinian Territories, which had failed to cater to the demand for jobs and broad social services, and is widely viewed as corrupt. In 2007, through funding from Iran, Hamas managed to allocate $60 million in monthly stipends for 100,000 workers, and a similar sum for 3,000 fishermen laid idle by Israel's imposition of restrictions on fishing offshore, plus grants totaling $45 million to Palestinian detainees in Israeli prisons and their families. Even the Palestinian Authority, which is considered to be the more moderate governing body compared to Hamas, has legislation and allocations of monthly salaries and benefits rewarding imprisoned and released terrorists, as well as the families of martyrs, amounting to $300 million annually at one point. To be sure, these grants are subject to a rigorous cost-benefit analysis of if and how beneficiaries will support these Palestinian factions, with those linked to terrorist activities often receiving more than others. An investigation this year into Gaza teaching materials found anti-Semitic incitement in schools run by the UN Relief and Works Agency. What's more, many of the teachers employed there also make openly anti-Semitic statements, glorify Hitler, and cheer the murder of Jews. In mosques and at summer camps, they teach kids the supreme value and various methods of killing Jews. One Muslim preacher was quoted as saying, Our doctrine in fighting the Jews is that we will totally exterminate them. We will not leave a single one of them alive.
because they are alien usurpers of the land and eternal mercenaries. This is what makes Palestinian terror deeply rooted in religious ideology, what UCLA professor David Rappaport calls sacred terror. Rappaport was the first to claim that, historically, religious doctrines were more important than political considerations for terrorists to do terrorist things, while also arguing that religious terrorism goes back to ancient times. Sacred terrorists find their rationale in the past, either in divine instructions transmitted long ago or in interpretations of precedents from founding periods of the parent religions, Rappaport wrote. The very idea of the holy entails contrast with the profane, the normal, or the natural. In Gaza, this couldn't be more true. The Strip started to become an increasingly Islamic society in the 1960s, when it was still under Egyptian jurisdiction. But after Egypt once again blocked Israeli ships from using the Straits of Tehran, the 1967 Six-Day War broke out, which led to Israel overtaking control of Gaza. Meanwhile, in 1928, the Muslim Brotherhood was founded in Egypt, although it remained a fringe group in politics across the Arab world. After a resounding Arab defeat by Israel against Egypt, Syria, and Jordan in the Six-Day War, Islamic fundamentalism began replacing the popularity of secular Arab nationalism. Following this war, Gaza's iterations of the Muslim Brotherhood did not actively participate in armed resistance against Israel, preferring to focus on social religious reform and the restoration of Islamic values. This outlook changed in early 1980s Gaza, and Islamic organizations became more involved in Palestinian politics. The idea of Hamas began taking form in late 1987, when several members of the Muslim Brotherhood convened the day after an incident in which an Israeli army truck had crashed into a car at a Gaza checkpoint, killing four Palestinian day workers. A leaflet issued in December 1987, calling for resistance, is considered to be Hamas's first public intervention, though the name Hamas was not used until 1988. To many Palestinians, Hamas appeared to engage more authentically with them since it provided an Islamic version of what had been the Palestine Liberation Organization's original goals. Armed struggle to liberate all of Palestine, from the river to the sea, rather than territorial compromises to which the PLO acquiesced. Creating Hamas as an entity distinct from the Muslim Brotherhood was a matter of practicality. The Muslim Brotherhood refused to engage in violence against Israel, but without participating in the First Intifada, the Islamists tied to it feared they would lose support to their rivals, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and the PLO. They also hoped that by keeping its militant activities separate, Israel would not interfere with its social work. In 1988, Hamas published its official charter, wherein it defined itself as a chapter of the Muslim Brotherhood and its desire to establish an Islamic state throughout Palestine. While Hamas hasn't fulfilled this desire, since 2001, it's been among the five most active terror groups worldwide, and it's considered to be the third most wealthiest one, sitting on a financial empire worth $700 million, all in the name of ideology. To be fair, many of us subscribe to some form of ideology, no matter how positive it may be. This makes sense because ideologies can also be used as coping mechanisms, since they are patterned clusters of normatively imbued ideas and concepts, including particular representations of power relations, 
These conceptual maps help people navigate the complexity of their political universe. One of the problems with ideology is when its system of presentations explicitly or implicitly claim to be the absolute truth. And it's this type of thinking that leads to presumed universalism. In the Western world, much of human civilization has been transformed from a culture of particularism, that is, tribalism, nationalism, religion, to a culture of universalism, in which a universalistic ideal dominates, and particularism is viewed as inferior. This universalistic ideal is also what enables dangerous ideologies to be propagated, thanks to Western principles like freedom of speech and the right to protest. It is always interesting to note that only Western liberal democracies tolerate and give succor to the most heinous arguments and positions in public protests, wrote Gareth Cliff, a South African radio personality and television host. You couldn't pick it on the side of quite laudable things like education for girls in Taliban Afghanistan, gay rights in Syria, or against the death penalty in Saudi Arabia, he added. The Ayatollahs of Iran wouldn't allow women to protest the hijab there under threats of violence. But London, New York, Sydney, and even Johannesburg will embrace marches where people actively call for genocide. The historical roots of this universalistic ideal can be traced back to the rise of industries in the late 19th century, before which a culture of particularism dominated, and after which a perfect storm of big business, urbanization, and mass immigration changed Western societies, including who we are, whom we admire, how we act, what we look for in friends and acquaintances, and how we court our mates and raise our children. Whereas particularism searches for what is different, unique, or exceptional to create something that is incomparable or of special quality, universalism searches for what is systematic and tries to impose the rules, laws, and norms on all of its members so that things can run more efficiently. It has also led to a culture of materialism and individualism, rooted in capitalist, industrial modernity. Where universalism loses major credibility is in its core premise. Universalists are, in reality and after all, particularistic. The rules, laws, and norms that one thinks should be imposed on others are not necessarily the same as those that different groups prefer, inherently making each group's desired impositions particularistic. Even the Dalai Lama struggled with the universalism-particularism quagmire, saying, When I was a boy in Tibet, I felt my own Buddhist religion must be the best and that other faiths were somehow inferior. Now I see how naive I was and how dangerous the extremes of religious intolerance can be today. While preserving faith towards one's own tradition, one can respect, admire, and appreciate other traditions. Although the state of Israel is very much particularist in that it is a country for the Jewish people, most Israelis have been willing to live side by side with the Palestinians in two states for two peoples, as evidenced by ten different peace proposals that Israel has willingly agreed to since the 1930s. While it's hard to know if most Palestinians feel the same, the fact is that Palestinian leaders going back to the 1960s have been unwilling to give up what Aaron David Miller calls the Palestinian narrative, entire control of the West Bank, East Jerusalem as a future Palestinian state's capital, and the Palestinian right of return to both a would-be Palestine and Israel proper. The only solution to this conflict is separation through negotiation, said Miller, a Middle East analyst, author, and negotiator. Miller would know.
He spent hundreds of hours with Yasser Arafat, then the chairman of the Palestinian Authority, leading up to and during the 2000 Camp David summit between U.S. President Bill Clinton, Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak, and Arafat. Arafat wouldn't counter, nor would he offer a proposal that diverged at all from the Palestinian narrative, said Miller. If Arafat couldn't do this deal or any deal with the moral authority that he had, and with the legitimacy that he had, even presiding over a fractious Palestinian national movement, then I'm not entirely persuaded any Palestinian leader could do this deal. After the 2000 Camp David summit failed to produce meaningful progress toward a two-state solution, the Second Intifada, a violent Palestinian uprising, immediately ensued, resulting in more than 1,000 Israeli deaths, which in turn made a lot of Israelis lose hope in a two-state solution. Since then, Israel has predominantly been run by center-right and right-wing politicians who are known to make security an unequivocal top priority. Meanwhile, a variety of countries and international bodies started sending big bucks to the Palestinians, perhaps as a concession for not knowing how to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In 2021, Qatar provided $360 million for Hamas government salaries and cash handouts to families. The United Nations funds and runs schools and hospitals in Gaza and employs many workers, teachers, and medical personnel, spending $600 million in 2020. And Western officials estimate that Iran provides Hamas with $100 million annually, while the terror group produces some $15 million per month on smuggled Egyptian goods. This is the other side of religious terrorism. In addition to theological and political theater, it's a money-making machine, since terrorists know their notoriety can be leveraged to produce all types of revenue. It works something like this. Terror groups want the public to watch their horrific acts and fear what's coming next. Hence why so many Palestinian terrorists wore body cameras during their October 7th massacre to videotape their monstrous behavior and share it across social media. Then, these terror groups aim to force a significant response, in this case from Israel, to cause mass misery for a civilian population in which Palestinian terrorists operate and hide. In turn, terror groups like Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad use this misery to generate new recruits, propaganda, and support, both diplomatic and financial, from allies in the region and further abroad, buttressed by an Islamist ideology that praises death and destruction. All while countries and international organizations continue to funnel billions of dollars to the Palestinians, thereby giving terror groups like Hamas a very literal free pass from spending its money on socio-economic initiatives for the everyday Palestinian people. And so the cycle continues, a virtuous cycle for these terror groups, becoming an increasingly lethal flywheel. More money for terrorism produces more death and destruction, which forces significant responses from victims, which creates misery among innocent Palestinian civilians, which generates new terror recruits, propaganda, and support, while prompting more countries and international organizations to continue funneling billions of dollars to the Palestinians. Hence why Palestinian terror, based on fundamental Islamic ideologies, is a booming business that's just too good to sell. Thank you for listening to another episode of A Little Historical Context, where we help you become a smarter citizen 
by sharing unbiased context, nuance, and depth about the world's most meaningful topics and current events. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting our mission to make you and millions of others smarter about the world's most meaningful topics and current events. You can support us by sharing this podcast episode with your family and friends, as well as by making a financial contribution on our website, alittlehistoricalcontext.com. Thank you, and have a great rest of your day.